Welcome to Spiritual Storytelling. This is Brooke, and I'm so excited to be here with you today. I want to talk a little bit about the podcast itself before we get started. So I just want to remind everyone that there is never one way to read a story. Stories are so powerful because they're universal. They're a lot like mirrors in that we see what we see depending on the angle with which we're looking. As we move into discussions around folklore and motifs, these are stories and themes that are powerfully simple. I just want to say that my interpretations here are only angles to look into and not the reflections themselves. Also, I want to take a minute to ask a favor. If you like what you hear here today, please head over to iTunes or wherever you're listening and leave a review or share with some of your friends. It goes a really long way to get this labor of love out into the ether. And the idea that this podcast might find its way to the people who really need to hear it is why I do what I do. Regardless, I really want to thank you for walking alongside me through this journey. This is episode four, the singing bones motif, standing in unapologetic truth. The storyline we're working with today is potent, but it is a tad grisly, so listeners' discretion is definitely advised. The Singing Bones story was made famous by the Grimm brothers, like so many others that we know and love. It does have incarnations throughout different times and cultures, and it's really important for us to remember that the Grimm's popularized a lot of these stories, but they were certainly not the sources of them. The brothers gathered stories from a variety of people, often women, and put them out into the world, and it kind of implicitly claimed them. Um, So it's really important to note that this is definitely problematic, but I am digressing a bit. From 1910 to 2004, scholars collected these folk stories from Grimm's and other sources from all over the world and sorted them based on category into a database known as the ATU, or the Aaron Thompson Uther Index, named after the scholars who collected and expanded this work. That's to say that the singing bone is not only a story in itself, but a type of story also. If you're interested in further research, it falls under the ATU type 780, We'll talk a little bit afterwards about the variations that we see from story to story and from different time periods and regions, but I definitely recommend doing some research on this type if you're interested, because it really is fascinating. For our purposes, I'm going to work with the English, kind of Scottish version entitled Benore. Once upon a time, there were two king's daughters who lived in a bower near the Bonnie Mill dams of Benore. And Sir William came wooing the eldest, and won her love, and plighted troth with glove and with ring. But after a time he looked upon the youngest, with her cherry cheeks and golden hair, and his love went out to her, until he cared no more for the eldest one. So she hated her sister for taking away Sir William's love, and day by day her hate grew and grew, and she plotted and she planned of how to get rid of her. So one fine morning, fair and clear, she said to her sister, Let us go and see our father's boats come in at the bonny mill stream of Benori. So they went there hand in hand. 
And when they came to the river's bank, the youngest got upon a stone to watch for the beaching of the boats. And her sister, coming behind her, caught her round the waist and dashed her into the rushing millstream of Benori. Oh, sister, sister, reach me your hand, she cried as she floated away, and you shall have half of all I've got or shall get. No, sister, I'll reach you no hand of mine, for I am the heir to all your land. Shame on me if I touch her hand that has come twixt me and my own heart's love. Oh, sister, oh, sister, then reach me your glove, she cried as she floated further away and you shall have your William again. Sink on, cried the cruel princess. No hand or glove of mine you'll touch. Sweet William will be all mine when you are sunk beneath the bonny millstream of Benori. And she turned and went home to the king's castle. And the princess floated down the millstream, sometimes swimming and sometimes sinking, until she came near the mill. Now the miller's daughter was cooking that day, and needed water for her cooking. And as she went to draw it from the stream, she saw something floating towards the mill dam, and she called out, Father, father, draw your dam! There's something white, a merry maid or a milk-white swan coming down the stream. So the miller hastened to the dam and stopped the heavy, cruel mill wheels. And then they took out the princess and laid her on the bank. Fair and beautiful she looked as she lay there. In her golden hair were pearls and precious stones. You could not see her waist for her golden girdle, and the golden fringe of her white dress came down over her lily feet. But she was drowned. And as she lay there in her beauty, a famous harper passed by the mill dam of Benori, and he saw her sweet pale face. And though he traveled on far away, he never forgot that face. And after many days, he came back to the bonny mill stream of Benori. But then all he could find of her, where they had put her to rest, were her bones and her golden hair. He made harp pins of her fingers, fair. He made harp strings of her golden hair. He made a harp of her breastbone and traveled on up the hill from the mill dam of Benori until he came to the castle of the king, her father. That night they were all gathered in the castle to hear the great harper, king and queen, their daughter and son, Sir William, and all their court. And at first the harper sang to his old harp, making them joy and be glad, or sorrow and weep, just as he liked. But while he sang, he put the harp he made that day on a stone in the hall, and presently it began to sing by itself, low and clear, and the harper stopped and all were hushed. And this is what the harp sung. Oh, yonder sits my father, the king, Benore, oh, Benore. And yonder sits my mother, the queen, by the bonny mill dams, oh, Benore. And yonder stands my brother Hugh, Benore, oh, Benore. And by him my William, false and true, by the bonny mill dams, oh, Benore. And there sits my false sister Anne, who drowned me for the sake of a man, by the bonny mill dams, oh, Benore. And the harp snapped and broke, and never sang more.
So as I said before, it is a tad grisly, yes. Um, but as a whole, this story reminds us that there's always potential for justice. Always potential for the light of truth to shine through, even when all seems lost. The equation for this motif is really simple. Essentially, you always have a good-hearted sibling who is virtuous and another who is greedy and jealous. The virtuous sibling has something the greedy one desires, and so a secret murder takes place, and the greedy sibling succeeds in gaining what they so wanted, and their competition is now out of the way. Meanwhile, some sort of passerby discovers the body of the victim and creates an instrument of what remains, often bones or hair, and the instrument takes on a magical life, playing its song of truth. So sometimes it's brothers fighting for power, either by winning the hand of some princess, as we see in the Grimm's version of the singing bone, or brother and sister competing for a chance at ruling the realm, as we see in the Blue Lotus from Spain. Occasionally you'll get shepherds instead of millers that find a bone perfect for a flute instead of a harp. But often the song is played many times for many different people before it reaches the ears of anyone who can actually decode its meaning. In Under the Green Old Oak Tree from Antigua, the shepherd is delighted with the song and plays it for passerby until he comes to the home of the victim's family and reveals the truth by happenstance. And frequently, this is the same space that we inhabit when we suffer abuse and harm. When we're abused by others in any way, emotionally, physically, sexually, spiritually, or mentally, we often tend to see ourselves as victimized and empty. We're broken and left only with our bones. We might sing quietly at first, telling the world about the injustice that we suffered. This is a subjective thing, and it can look different for each person. Sometimes there are various cries for help or healing. These might look like addictive behaviors or self-destructive behaviors, disordered eating, sleeping, or sex, or even being overly clingy or shut off and numbed completely. Each of these are an individual's way of singing their truth song, though it may not yet be clear to those who hear it. It may still yet need to be decoded. Sometimes we fear to sing too loudly, terrified that our song, our real truth, is somehow not important or bad enough to make a fuss. Not bad enough to be loud and uncompromising about our worth. We make our truth small, disguise it, or try to justify our bloody ends by being overly empathetic to our own murderer. Especially when our abuse is long-standing, we tend to come to believe that the injustice that we experienced was our fault. And guys, we may not justify it like by completely claiming it to be our fault consciously but we very well might try to put distance between the abuser and the abuse. We might focus on how the abuser has been victimized in their life, how they may not have had the tools to do better, or how they don't really mean to hurt us. And some of those things might be true. Oftentimes, abusers were victims who were never mended. But for the sake of our healing, those things do not matter. 
What does matter is that none of those excuses are our responsibility. I'm going to say this again, in case there are any younger me's out there listening. (laughs) The reasons your abuser had for hurting you are not your responsibility. Even if you think that they weren't the worst person in the world, even if you love them, even if you think they didn't mean to hurt you or they had some sort of sob story, it doesn't matter. We do not owe kindness, understanding, or empathy to those who contributed to our abuse or pain. We are not obligated to stay silent in order to protect them from the consequences of their actions. Part of this journey to healing is setting down that false sense of obligation. It is to let ourselves shed a skin that is just too tight. When we do that, we are put back together. We put ourselves back together. We gather our pieces and we make something new from our broken bones. And then there is space for something really magical to happen. When we start to heal, a spiritual connection between us and the divine can begin to form. We can lean into our own intuitions and really focus on hearing ourselves in our own inner wisdom. This connection to God or the universe or whatever makes sense to you spiritually, that is what emboldens us to sing or play our song. We develop a relationship with our highest self, that inner piece of us, which is the essence of our spirituality. It is a permanent, unscathed place that resides under all the tangles of trauma. It is something that no one else can touch. It is our essence. It is who we really are. It is our truth. This connection can embolden us. It can reconstruct our bones so that we are sometimes able to return to the source of our wounds and confront them. Even if it's too late for our fate to be reversed, we can still have our day, sing our song, and expose those responsible, no matter what our listeners hear. The power of this story is sometimes in the telling, in the exposing, not in the hearing. After all, the story ends with the princess singing her song, telling her truth, not with the way that the king hears it or what he does afterwards. The power that she wields is in her ability to stand tall and sing loud. We can't control whether or not others have the language to hear our song. What is most important here is that we sing it. This is not to say that justice isn't important. In a world where black men can't breathe and two words as simple as me too reveal the devastation of mothers, daughters, and sisters, justice could not be more important. I'm only saying that we tell our truth for our sake. We can't control what the world does with it. It doesn't matter to the integrity of our truth if no one believes us. It is still true, valid, and it still affects us. Healing is often about letting that little broken piece in us stand up for her, stand up and tell her story, see her own rescue 
manifested by her alone. Becoming our own protector and advocate are some of the most important parts of relearning our worth, establishing boundaries that keep us healthy, and becoming self-sufficient, trusting that we are all we need to keep us safe. And this dynamic, this is the backbone of knowing what you know and leaning into your own wisdom in cultivating your own intuition and your own core sense of self that you always carry in you. And this is such a crucial part of being in relationships with others. Because we now have something to stand on, something that keeps lines around us. This is why we have boundaries, to protect that core truth in us, that core self in us. It is cherished above all else. When we take the time to discover it, to honor it, and to come to understand that protecting it is protecting all of ourselves, we are no longer willing to tolerate any kind of manipulation or abuse. No one, not even those we love the most, are believed or prioritized over our own inner knowing. And this is what we're really seeking. This is so often what we lose access to when we have lived in trauma. And this is why it's such a crucial part of getting better. Because if we don't take the time to cultivate and honor that space, what happens is we're like a leaf in the wind. We become mere context, environment. We bend and flex ourselves into distorted versions of who we are. We get picked up and tossed around, a victim to happenstance. In relationships, we lose ourselves. We can't formulate boundaries because it just makes so much more sense to go with the flow and not make anybody mad. And you know, like, why bother? <laughs> There's nothing tangible in us worth fighting for, worth standing in. Guys, cultivating this inner sense of connection, this inner trust, this inner landscape of interiority, that is what the healing is. That is what the magic is. That is what we are really, really aiming for. When we stop worrying so much about how or if our song will be heard, we are reaffirming that peace in us. We are telling that peace in us that it, it doesn't matter. If no one believes us, it doesn't make our story any less true. If no one can hear us, it doesn't mean we're not singing. Because we are our own savior. We are our own champions, stepping in and refusing to allow anyone to overstep our bounds. So when we stand tall and we sing our song, we are cultivating a sacred sovereignty over our own self that is so crucial for the world that we live in today. With deep love and gratitude, I want to thank you for tuning in to Spiritual Storytelling. And as always, our intro music today was by Esther Garcia Gonzalez. Mm -hmm.